Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is the first in a series on anticoagulation. Now, we spent the last few episodes talking about coagulation. So we talked about, as a brief refresher, the clotting cascades. We talked about the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways, how they both lead to our common pathway, and that helps us produce that nice fibrin mesh that is able to fit over our platelet plug. And of course, our platelet plug is formed by our platelet aggregation, our adhesion, the aggregation forming that plug. And we walked through this process about how the body can naturally keep it from not occurring when we don't want it to happen. But when we do want the clot to occur, we talk about the different signaling mechanisms that occur. Now, there are times in critical care where we want to anticoagulate a patient. And it's important to understand that we can deactivate platelets. We can have antiplatelet therapy, or we can specifically target the clotting cascade with anticoagulation. And there's a wide variety of reasons why we might do this. We have a patient currently having a thrombus. So they have a PE, they have a DVT. We have clot formation possibly, let's say, in one of our coronary arteries, and we do not want that clot getting any larger than it currently is. Well, what we might want to do is provide an anticoagulant. We could have a situation where we're a surgical patient and we're on bypass. We're doing, you know, we're doing a a cardiac bypass, possibly we're doing a heart valve replacement, possibly we're looking at a situation where we're doing a vascular surgery where we need to anticoagulate the patients because of the blood flowing through the bypass circuit. We also have situations where we have long-term patients on ECMO in an ICU or continuous renal replacement therapy. So we're on a continuous dialysis and we're having issues, whether it's clotting in the, the ECMO circuit or it's clotting in our dialysis filter, and we want to provide some anticoagulation to help decrease that clotting. And these are some of the reasons, and this is just a brief overview of some of the reasons why we might want to induce anticoagulation. Today, we're going to specifically look at heparin, though. And the reason I want to look at heparin is this is one of our most common IV and sub-Q anticoagulants used in critical care, and it provides a nice launch pad into anticoagulation. Now, with heparin, we've already talked about heparin because heparin is naturally occurring. Remember, in our first episode on coagulation, heparin is naturally a protein that is in our endothelium. So it's within our vessels. It's on the vessel walls. And heparin interacts with antithrombin. And remember what antithrombin does. Antithrombin is able to specifically interact with and degrade specific clotting factors. Now, for the clotting cascade to occur, remember, we have a lot of inactive enzymes called zymogens that have to be activated. And of course, those activated enzymes are then able to dramatically increase the rate of our reactions. But what antithrombin is doing is essentially ensuring that we're not able to activate these enzymes and lead to our clotting cascade from occurring. So specifically, antithrombin works on factors two, nine, and 10, but I really wanna focus on clotting factor 10 and clotting factor two, which is also called thrombin. So heparin, when it's either endogenous or exogenous, so endogenous meaning it's been produced by our own bodies naturally, or exogenous, we're giving it to the patient. 
the mechanism and the way it works is the same. And so because of the shape of protein and the way it affects our antithrombin, we're going to have inhibition of factor 10. So we're unable to activate factor 10. Remember, we have an intrinsic and extrinsic pathway, two different ways to get to what's called the common pathway. And that common pathway starts with activated factor 10. So first and foremost, heparin is acting on preventing us getting the activated factor 10. That's really important. Number two, heparin, because of its large molecular shape and the interaction with antithrombin, is able to deactivate or prevent thrombin from becoming activated. Now, thrombin is critical in its role as a positive feedback system feeding back into the common pathway. It's also important in the production, of course, when we think about thrombin, we progress to fibrinogen. It's a critical step. It also has effects on platelets. And so if we can also inhibit thrombin from being moved into fibrinogen, we're also able to, at another critical step in the common pathway, slow down and decrease the effect of the clotting cascade. And so in general, that's how heparin is working. Now, something that's important to remember is we have two ways of thinking of heparin. We have, typically what we have is our unfractioned heparin, and that's what we would be giving IV or sub-Q. We can also have what's called low molecular weight heparin. This is something you'll see often. It's called Lovenox, anoxaparin. This is a little bit different. It's a smaller protein. Because it's a smaller protein, it's able to inhibit factor 10. So we're able to stop the activation of factor 10. But the inhibition of thrombin production or the activation of thrombin, it's highly dependent on the size of the protein. And because heparin's very large and the interaction we have, we're able to inhibit thrombin. But low molecular weight heparins are much smaller. And because of that, they're unable to inhibit thrombin. Because of that, when we are using heparin, we usually use what's called an APTT. So that is the activated partial thromboplastin time to measure how much we're anticoagulating. But if we're on Lovenox or anoxaparin, remember, we are not going to be using an APTT because APTT is really looking at that thrombin. And for us, we are with Lovenox, really only effective on factor 10. That's why often you'll see a 10A assay used when we look at Lovenox. Now that we've kind of laid the foundation for generally how heparin works and then also how molecular, low molecular weight heparin is effective, let's talk about how we do our dosing and we're going to talk briefly too about the routes of administration. Now, heparin's a very large protein and because of that, and it's also very negatively charged, it's not able to be absorbed in the GI system. So that's why we don't have an oral heparin option. We also don't like to give heparin IM. Now, the reason is it has a high risk for a hematoma. And so we don't administer it IM. And you also want to be careful when you're giving it subcutaneously in an injection, because again, 
we don't want it to be intramuscular. And so that's why often we give it in the fatty tissue in the stomach, somewhere where we're really certain we are getting a good subcutaneous injection. Now, when we think about IV, IV is one of our more common ways we're giving heparin. Now, heparin is unique in that it's half-life, so the unfractioned heparin, so our normal molecular weight heparin, typically has a half-life of 60 minutes to two hours, roughly. When we are administering it subcutaneously, you typically are going to see orders where it's roughly every eight hours or so. Of course, with subcutaneous, we're having a different delayed um, mechanism here in terms of its ability to anticoagulate. Now, what's interesting about heparin, though, is its half-life can be altered by the dosing. And remember back to what heparin does. Remember, heparin is naturally attached to the endothelium. So if we give a really large dose, so we give a large bolus, it tends to really saturate the endothelium. And so it sometimes will take quite a bit of time for it to finally uh, essentially remove itself from the endothelium. And so because of that, when we give really large doses, we can have a much longer half-life than normal. And so that's one of the important things to remember about IV heparin in particular is that when we have these really large doses and its ability to interact with our endothelium, we can potentially have an extended period of anticoagulation beyond what we would think of as the normal half-life for heparin. Now, typically with heparin, we're going to be measuring our level of anticoagulation with an APTT. Now, remember, that's our activated partial thromboplastin time. So the way this lab is done is we're going to take a blood sample and place it in a, a blue citrated tube. Now, one important thing about heparin labs is that heparin, if we're pulling it out of the same IV line or a central line that the heparin is running through, remember heparin actually has the ability to bind to the tubing in, in whatever way we're administering it. And so one of our concerns with heparin is that there's a potential for having artificially high values when we're pulling from the same line. And so one of the recommendations that I've seen consistently from a variety of sources is the value of flushing your line multiple times of multiple 10 mil um, blood waste before we're really drawing that heparin lab especially if we're having to pull from the same line that it's in. So that's something that's really quite important. It is interesting. You'll see mixed results on if you should or should not pause the heparin drip when you're drawing the lab. I've, I've spoken with our own facility lab. I've done a lot of research, and there tends to be some mixed discussions about if you should or should not pause the drip. I do think it's important to remember if you're pulling from a central line, and you have heparin infusing, but you're pulling from a different port. Yes, you have pretty good mixing from your superior inferior vena cava, and, there, and there's quite a bit of hemodilution occurring. There's always that risk, though, that if you are administering heparin through there and you're pulling from a different port, even if it's proximal or distal to where the heparin's infusing, there's always that risk that you are pulling up a little bit of heparin in that solution. And so, again, it's something we want to think about because heparin is going to be able to interact with antithrombin, which of course is just sitting there in our blood plasma. And so something to always think about is to be very careful when we're drawing our heparin labs. 
So we use an APTT. So we're going to pull our blood and we're going to place it in a blue citrated tube. Now the citrate is a natural anticoagulant. It binds calcium. That blue tube is going to be centrifuged. We're going to remove our red blood cells. Now what we do is we take some of that plasma. Remember, all of our clotting cascade really occurs within our plasma. That's where all of our inactivated enzymes are and all of our factors are located. And so what we're able to do with an APTT is we are actually able to induce the intrinsic pathway. Remember, intrinsic is a little slower. And the way we do that is we expose it to collagen. So collagen is how we initiate the intrinsic pathway. So this is going to be factors like 12, 11, 9 to 10. And when we induce this pathway, we're able to see how long it takes for clot formation to occur. Now, with the APTT, at the end of the day, we're ultimately looking at thrombin. And that's what's really important about this. Yes, we're moving through factor 10, which we're affecting, but we're really looking at thrombin. And so because of that, we're going to see the amount of time. There, The machines are going to be able to do some optical analysis or there's various other assay methods that are utilized. And we can see the clot formation and we can determine in seconds how long it takes. And we know in general, of course, a lot of variation from lab to lab, 25 or 35 seconds is a normal time for the clot formation to occur. Now, we know that we're trying to push that time out. And so we're going to have specific goals based on our order set for how long this needs to take. Now, remember, if we are using Lovenox or we are doing something that's not specifically focused on thrombin inhibition, then we're going to need to look at something called a factor 10A assay. So that's going to be a bit different. So as always, whenever you have your heparin orders, check to see which lab is needing to be utilized because that will depend based upon what's in your patient's system. I do think it's worth just mentioning very quickly that this is an APTT, but a lot of people ask when I'm training, well, what on earth is a PT? So a PT is just our prothrombin time. This is really measuring our extrinsic pathway. So this is our quicker pathway. So we essentially go through the same process with the citrated blue tube. Again, removing red blood cells, we're going to take some of the plasma, but we're going to this time expose it to tissue factors. A tissue factor is what initiates the extrinsic pathway. And we're again able to see how long we move to that clot formation. This leads to what's called an INR. This is that normalized ratio we look at. This essentially takes your patient's PT time in seconds divided by a reference range group. So we take a large group of people, we find out what the mean is. So we're going to divide the patient's time by this reference group time to get to our value. And so that's what an INR is. And so I think it's that's just something that's not very specific to what we're talking about with heparin, but it is something when we start talking about Coumadin that will be really important in a future episode. So we've talked about heparin, how it works. We've talked about the generally how we're going to administer it. We talk about the lab values for monitoring levels of, of, of anticoagulation. I want to make a few, just a few points about when we get our orders to initiate heparin. So typically if we're giving it subcutaneously, it's roughly every eight hours. Many times it's more weight dependent based upon pharmacy. So you could be looking at anything from 5,000 units to 7,500. 
units every eight hours. Again, it's going to depend on the patient, the size of the patient, and the specific reason and level we're trying to anticoagulate the patient. Again, the most important part there is making sure it really is a subcutaneous injection and being careful that you do use a very specific heparin syringe to get the dosing correct. Typically, subcutaneous heparin injections do not require dual sign-off. IV heparin's different. It's typically a double check, so double verification with another nurse. I do think this is really valuable because heparin orders can on occasion be a bit confusing, especially when you're initiating a heparin drip. So a few things I've always done, whether I'm initiating the drip or I'm double checking a nurse initiating a drip, there's a few steps I always take that I think are really valuable. Number one, am I giving an initial bolus or not? Some drips, you just start the drip at a very specific rate. Others, you're going to give an initial bolus and then start your drip. So question one, am I giving an initial bolus? Number two, what am I starting the drip at? And is it weight-based dosing or just unit-based dosing? Again, this is important. Sometimes in our facility, we typically are using weight-based dosing. I sometimes will receive a patient from an outside facility and it's just units an hour. And so that's really important. Make sure whether you have a transfer patient coming in or you're initiating your drip, confirm your dosing. The third thing I think about when I look at heparin drips is what lab are we using and is it appropriate? So are we using an APTT? Are we using a a 10A or the XA as you'll see often? And is that appropriate for your patient? The other thing I think about is how long from when I initiate the drip, do I need to have that lab? And I try to go ahead and put that lab order in or make sure that lab order is attained. At the same time here, I usually am thinking about as well, access. I always like to be thinking about, do I have a place to be able to put this in a line? Because I don't really wanna have to draw labs from the same line the heparin's infusing. I've just had too many issues where I feel like I'm having contaminated results. Do I need better IV access? And I think that's really valuable when you're starting a heparin drip. I remember back when I was an ICU float nurse in our cardiac ICU, we would really commonly be using heparin drips, but often these are patients with just peripheral IVs and you're also running multiple other medications. And those are those patients that I think can really benefit from new IV access or another point of IV access. Now, When we're looking at this, the final thing I like to consider is my bolus orders. And so this is where it can get a little bit confusing. And and again, hospital systems vary. I know with our hospital system, we'll have our IV infusion orders, which will have, here's what I initiate the drip at. And then based upon these lab results, here's how I adjust my drip. And so if I'm low, I'm going to have to give a half bolus from, or if I'm, you know, low beyond another specific point, I'm going to give a full bolus. But often my bolus orders for heparin are not attached to the IV continuous infusion orders. They're going to be in my PRN orders. So at that point, I need to go to my PRN orders and look at my bolus dosing. Now, this is really important to look at, not only when you're giving a bolus, but if you're double checking another nurse, because this is where sometimes patients can have multiple PRN heparin orders. I've seen this where old orders don't get cleaned up. And so we have old orders in the PRN list. And so that's something just to be cognizant of and be thinking about. I think it's valuable too. This is where we do that double check because yes, One mil is a thousand units of heparin. It's pretty standard. It's something you do regularly, but just triple check. 
because especially when you're tired, you know, it's, it's on night shift and the room's dark and you pull it up in a syringe. It's never bad to have a second set of eyes. And so really watch when you're, when you're doing your PRN boluses to just confirm the order, confirm the lab values and make sure we're doing it correctly. Now, often I think too, when we're double checking heparin drips, there's a mechanical system I like to follow, some mechanics that I was really drilled in on me, and I think it's valuable. Make sure that we look at the heparin bag, we confirm the concentration, we confirm the volume, we see the line, we trace the line to the channel, we look at the channel, we look at the brain, we confirm our dosing, that the dosing is correct. And then we're going to trace that line all the way into where it is connected to the patient. Is it a correct and appropriate place to be infusing the heparin? The reason I say this is because it can happen where the heparin bag is spiked on a different channel and we could be dangerously infusing at a much greater rate heparin. Additionally, we want to make sure that the dosing is correct, especially let's say if our dose was too high on an APTT result, so we had to pause the drip for an hour, you know, resume two units lower, things like that. We need to take that seriously because small changes in a heparin drip can have pretty significant impacts on patients' levels of anticoagulation. And conversely, if we're subtherapeutic, we're too low, but we're not adjusting the rate accordingly, again, we could be equally putting our patient at risk. And so I think heparin drips really deserve that little bit of extra attention to detail. And I, I think they're just something that for a lot of newer ICU nurses, they're always not complex, but they're something that takes some time and familiarity with. And so I think in, in your first initiating, your first couple of heparin drips, grab that nurse that you trust, grab that person you've kind of built a friendship with and just ask them, say, hey, can you just triple check what's going on here to make sure I do it correctly? That one, that goes worlds in terms of just building trust with people on a unit. It's also a great way. I think a lot of people like explaining because, you know, it makes them feel valued. But I think also, too, it's a great way to make sure you're getting that familiarity with the heparin orders. And again, never assume your orders because the orders do change based on the type of patient you have. And so it's always important to look at all the details of your order. A final few things about our heparin drips and heparin administration. We want to think about our concern with heparin. So our biggest issue is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And so this is called HIT. The... The way in which it occurs is a simply a immune response. So it's an IgG-mediated response where essentially we have heparin binding to platelet factor 4, which binds to the platelets, and it essentially creates these platelet microparticles, and it, it leads to platelet aggregation. And so we have two issues here. We have the aggregation, so we can have thrombosis, but what we can also have is a consumptive effect and thrombocytopenia, so low platelets. What's most concerning about this is that sometimes this doesn't occur until 5 to 14 days after initiating heparin. And the problem, too, is we could say, hey, we were just on heparin. We noticed a few concerns. We turned the heparin off. We stopped giving the injection. We stopped the IV. Well, we can still have that effect for an extended period of time. And so that's our biggest concern with HIT. Now, 
Some of the more common issues we're looking at are some erythema around our injection sites, around the infusion sites. We could be looking for signs of thrombosis, so DVTs, PEs. We could be looking for things like a CVA. We could be, again, having our concern for thrombocytopenia. And so, again, anytime we're seeing significant drops in platelets, we really want to have that awareness raised a little bit about, okay, what's really going on? If you're interested in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia at a deeper level, uh, EMCRIT, uh, the website has a great kind of overview of the way in which you kind of do the, dif the, the differential diagnosis on are we really dealing with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or not? I think it's a great article, and I'll try to link that uh, down below because it's really worth kind of reading about at a deeper level. Now, typically when we suspect heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, we're going to stop heparin. But we have two problems. One, we were anticoagulating for a reason, so we probably need to continue to anticoagulate our patient. So one, we're typically going to transition to another anticoagulant. Usually, from the research I've done, we're not going to move to Coumadin. Many times, like if you're on IV heparin, we're going to move to something like Argatraban or Bivalarudin. And we're going to talk about those in future episodes. But we also need to continue anticoagulation because of the, the concern of thrombosis that could persist for many days after even the discontinuation of heparin. And so that's one of the reasons, too, we want to continue to anticoagulate, even with the concern for HIT. Now, HIT typically, we use one of, we kind of use two different tests to confirm this or not. The first one is the ELISA, so that's the enzyme linked immunosorbent assay. The concern with this is that we potentially have a higher rate of false positives. And so this is where we can do an SRA test. So we can do a serotonin release assay. This has to do, remember, serotonin is one of the ways our platelets do some of their signaling. And so this is kind of that final test we can use to confirm, yeah, we do think that we have heparin inducing this effect. Now, this is one of our most common concerns with heparin. There are some other concerns out there, potentially like aldosterone suppression. We can have some potential issues with hyperkalemia. And so those are things that are just kind of on the peripheral. The final thing to briefly mention is heparin reversal. And heparin reversal is done with protamine sulfate. And we can be using heparin reversal in a planned scenario, such as we were on bypass in the OR. We, we significantly anticoagulated the patient while they're on bypass, but now they're off bypass. And we want to reverse their heparin. So what we do is we give protamine sulfate, typically anything from 0.5 to 1 milligram per 100 units of heparin. We give the appropriate dosing, and then we're able to return to a normal level of coagulation. Now, we can also use this in an emergency situation where potentially a wrong dose of heparin was given or we're just persistently too high in our anticoagulation levels. Now, protamine sulfate has a few... Uh, issues at play or things we really need to be thinking about. Protamine sulfate has a very significant risk for anaphylactic reaction, but in particular hypotension. Most patients will have some degree of hypotension with protamine sulfate. Look at your orders, push protamine sulfate at the rate your pharmacist and the order set says. There's very few drugs where I say absolutely push it by the book. 
but I've given it so many times and we have arterial lines. So you're just watching the BP and even patients getting it at a really slow rate, exactly per order, typically have some degree of hypotension. And even if you're just pushing it like, I've, I've seen it where I'm just pushing it maybe 25% faster than I should, you really can see some hypotension with it. So that's our biggest issue is you don't want to just slam in a bunch of protamine sulfate in your patient. You often are going to have a significant, profound hypotensive reaction. The final thing to think about with protamine is that, remember, our heparin binds to the endothelium, and if we've given these massively large bolus doses, remember, it extends the half-life. So in an OR setting, they might reverse with the quote-unquote appropriate amount of protamine, but over time, you have that heparin rebound effect is what it's called, and it's simply because so much of it was attached to the endothelium. But we can have persistent heparinization activity for a pretty long time, and so sometimes we could have a patient that was correctly reversed, but then as we, if we move you know, an hour, an hour and a half after surgery, we start to have increased bleeding, and the potential is we might need more protamine to, to provide proper reversal of heparin. So today's episode was a little bit longer than I wanted, but I feel like heparin is one of those we really need to jump into. And honestly, I feel like you could talk for 20, 30 minutes longer about heparin because there's so much in it. But I think it provides that great initial step into anticoagulation. And so the following episode, we're going to talk about some of our other common IV anticoagulants utilized in critical care. And so specifically, I mentioned them already, but we're going to talk about our Gatraban. We're going to talk about Bivalarudin and a couple others, and specifically how their mechanisms of action, how they are similar, but also vary in contrast to heparin. <laughs>